Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary peoples alike, you know what that music means. It's time for another amazing, fantabulous episode of Wired Up. This is Wired Up episode 76, and we've got a lot to break down here on the podcast. Because yes, we did talk NBA on Friday with our buddy, Cam from Daily Sports Dosage with episode one of the DSD podcast, which you can find right now everywhere that you get podcasts. But even in just the two days since then, so much has changed in the NBA landscape. Even with only two games going on, still a lot has changed. So we've got a lot to get to here today. Uh, On Thursday, the Suns advanced, the Nuggets advanced, and... The 76ers, I'm sorry, the Atlanta Hawks advanced. The Sixers advanced the day before. And that sets up a playoff series kicking off on Monday between the Nuggets and the Suns, which means our buddy House of Phoenix Suns, you can check him out on Instagram with the link in the description to today's episode. Please follow him even if you're not a Suns fan. It's just great content covering the team for my money the best out there and it's not just because he's one of my great friends in the industry who will basically at the drop of a hat come do a podcast for us whenever we need phoenix suns talk but also he does a great job at what he does which is cover the phoenix suns and maybe you can tune into some of his lives so Uh, House of Phoenix Suns will join us to break down the Nuggets and Suns series at the back end of the podcast. So that'll take care of one of these second round series. Another one we have to put on pause because the Utah Jazz have to wait another day because today we have Game 7, Nuggets, I'm sorry, Game 7, Mavericks, Clippers. I was looking at the wrong thing. Apologies. Mavericks, Clippers, Game 7, And this one feels like, for all of my money, this feels like this is it for the Clippers. And we'll get to the Clippers in a little bit. But what I wanted to talk about here is something that I was basically saying is the big storyline coming into the playoffs. And so for those who maybe don't tune into the podcast or radio show or YouTube as regularly, or maybe you just need a refresher a little bit on what I wanted to talk about. Here's the the crash course of a podcast we did a couple weeks ago and what I've been mentioning over and over. The NBA is in a generational transition right now. A lot of the guys who for the last six or seven years have been running the NBA, whether it's LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Damian Lillard, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Kyrie Irving, 
I mean, I could keep going down the list of guys. Kawhi, I mean, Kawhi Leonard's a little bit of a tweener, but Kawhi Leonard kind of falls into that category. They're just guys that we've associated with the last half decade of basketball and dominating the NBA. A lot of these guys are starting to exit their prime. You know, Kevin Durant, 33 years old, and the average prime of an NBA player is around 27, 28 to 33. And so, or I'm sorry, 27, 28 to about 32, 33. And there's no exact number, but that's just the physical prime for a lot of these guys. And so the people we've become associated with in the NBA for the last five, six years of running the NBA, a lot of them are aging out. And a new generation of guys drafted between 2011 and 2016, those guys are now entering their primes at 26, 27, 28, and establishing themselves as the new faces of the NBA. And this, I came upon this idea when I was looking at the uh, win share ratings this year. And I noticed that a lot of the traditional candidates, LeBron, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, even though Steph Curry led the league in scoring and was unbelievable this year, was not very high in win shares. And all these guys at the top of the win shares rates were the new generation. Number one was Jokic, two Embiid, three Jimmy Butler, four Giannis, five was Rudy Gobert, which Rudy Gobert technically is in that generation, but you have to name a few names before you end up getting to Rudy Gobert. Uh, Kawhi Leonard was sixth on that list. Devin Booker was up in the top 10. And so I came upon this idea that, oh, the generational shift is happening right now. And one of the interesting, one of the, well, I think the most interesting thing about this is that this is a natural course of the NBA. And this playoffs, like last year in the bubble, was uncertainty abound like the the best teams were Milwaukee the Clippers and the Lakers and the Lakers are a weird tweener because Anthony Davis is part is one of the faces of the next generation of guys entering their prime right now with Giannis and Jokic and Embiid and Devin Booker and Donovan Mitchell and guys who are now entering their primes right now but also LeBron James is the face of the previous generation. So the Lakers are a fun experiment in a tweener. But anyways, the Lakers end up winning the championship. But you had a transitional phase. Jimmy Butler was in the midst of his prime. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo obviously is, for my money, the best player in the NBA. Uh, hands down, bar none. And now we've played a first round and we've got eight teams left. And there are many of them are the eight teams that we expected to be at this point. But I look up at who's left and I'm realizing the children are winning. And not only are the children winning the battle of the generation, but now here come the babies, the babies who were not even supposed to be on our radar other than just fun stories and fun teams to watch. Now that the babies are coming for the crown, like we're seeing a generational shift right in front of our eyes where Trey young is in the second round and, and based on Joel Embiid's health, Warriors South might have a genuine shot here because the the 76ers are in some deep shit. And I mentioned at the end of DSD, like, don't forget about Tobias Harris. Like, Tobias Harris is really good, and not very many teams have a third best player better than Tobias Harris, and not many teams have a best player better than Joel Embiid, which is why the injury to Embiid matters so much for the Sixers. But Warriors South with Trey Young and the children are making this huge run. John Morant won two playoff games. I feel like I watched more Memphis Grizzlies basketball across the last two weeks than I have in the last two, three years. 
like John Morant is starting to establish himself in his second run with the current iteration of that Grizzlies team. And of course, the storyline that's been dominating everything non-LeBron category because Anthony Davis's injury totally changed the math on the Suns-Lakers stuff. And, you know, once Anthony Davis gets hurt, it's no longer an upset because the Suns have great perimeter defense and struggle to defend the inside. And Anthony Davis was that kryptonite because once he took over in games, after game one where he kind of settled for mid-range jumpers and the Lakers only scored 90 points, after that, when Anthony Davis started bully balling the Phoenix Suns, the Lakers were rolling through the series and Anthony Davis gets hurt in game four and the Suns dominate the Lakers. They outscored him by 16 points in the first quarter without Anthony Davis. They beat him by 30 in game five with no Anthony Davis and Anthony Davis uh, can't play in game six and the Suns win by 30 points because the Lakers just didn't have anything non LeBron and Anthony Davis left in the tank. If you take, the first quarter, so that 16-point outscoring in the game four, then a 30-point blowout in game five, and then in the, in the first half, they were up 46 to 18. The Phoenix Suns were up 46 to 18. That's outscoring the Lakers. If you take those specific time frames, that's 46 plus 28. That's 74 points. The Suns outscored the Lakers by 74 points in seven quarters without Anthony Davis. The Lakers just didn't have anything there. So to to that point, the storyline of the last week has been Kawhi Leonard and Luka Doncic and the fact that the Los Angeles Clippers might be at a total crossroad ready to plunge them into six years of NBA irrelevance. So the fact that if they lose this game, and Kawhi Leonard decides that for his last big contract, because I think more than anything else, it's clear that Kawhi Leonard is going to sign a four or five year contract at the max this off season, because with the issues with his knees and now the issue with his foot, because I think um, his defense is starting to lack a little bit because of this foot injury that he's been battling. Like everything that exists with Kawhi Leonard, the, the Clippers if they lose Kawhi Leonard, you have when well, we've talked about this, you have to trade Paul George immediately. As soon as Kawhi Leonard is gone, you have to trade Paul George immediately because he holds the most value right now. His value only goes down from there. And what do you have after that? You've got a barren roster that's traded most of their draft picks, and you're now four well, you're already working forty million dollars against the salary cap because you've given sixteen million to Luke Kennard, which is impossible to move without attaching picks to it. You've given $16 million to Marcus Morris, which is possible to move, but I think you'd have to attach like a second-round pick or something, and matching contracts would be difficult, but he's under contract three more seasons. And you've given Patrick Beverly $13 million, which at the very least, Beverly's contract is, move, is movable, but he's basically been DMP'd for much of the series against the Dallas Mavericks because he just can't play defense anymore, which is such a strange turn of fortunes for... Patrick Beverly and it you look up right now and it looks like the Clippers who you know they were facing the same situation on Friday and Kawhi Leonard just went superhuman mode like it for anyone who was questioning Kawhi Leonard still as a player and injuries are the reason that we question Kawhi Leonard like we don't look up and say you know Kawhi Leonard is the man who's immediately going to change things but you look at his two superhuman performances across the last, 
two weeks of this series. It was game two where he put up 30 points in the first half when the Clippers were just the, the Mavericks were just going to town on them. The Mavericks scored 71 points in the first half of game two in Los Angeles. And Kawhi Leonard put up 30 points in the first half and carried the Clippers to a 73-71 halftime lead with 30 points in the first half. And they end up losing the game and then end up Luka's injury keeps them in the series. Luka's shoulder just going to shit in games three and four. Shoulder, neck, and back, sorry. The, the nerve issue affects shoulder, uh, shoulder, back, and neck. That's what keeps the Clippers in the series at all. But Kawhi goes supernova in game two and then goes supernova in game six. When it's season on the line, blueprint on the line, and I put blueprint in air quotes because it's like, you know, he could decide that he wants to live where he works and, and commute from San Diego every day and just be on a team that doesn't have much of a future but keep collecting those paychecks because Kawhi Leonard's knees and foot and ankle they can give out at any moment here. But Kawhi Leonard still showed, like, there's no reason to doubt him non-injuries. Kawhi Leonard is right in the middle of his prime. And the 42 points in three quarters that he put up, and he didn't do very much in the fourth quarter, but he didn't need to do very much in the fourth quarter because the Clippers ran through the rest of the quarter with, you know, three-pointers here and there from Marcus Morris, which... I know I just shit on Marcus Morris a second ago in his bad contract, but Marcus Morris did come through in game six for the Clippers and Paul George being a plus 24 on the court and the Clippers, the Clippers got a lot of help from Kawhi Leonard and his supernova performance kept them in the series with 42 points in the last three quarters of the game and you know, step back threes on Luca. It was it was a like one of the the legendary performances. Like Damian Lillard's performance is one we'll remember forever. And if the Clippers go on to win Game Seven today, or if you're listening to this afterwards, if the Clippers won Game Seven, it's a performance we're going to remember for a long time for Kawhi Leonard with the 42 points in the last three quarters to keep the series alive against the Dallas Mavericks. And so for Kawhi. And for the Dallas Mavericks, this feels like not only... This is what I was talking about at the beginning of the playoffs. Game seven, one game, winner go home. Yes, it's a small sample size, but it's generational shifts right in front of us. You've got 22-year-old Luka Doncic, who is a baby. Like, he's not even part of the children who are entering their prime with Anthony Davis and Giannis and Jokic and Embiid and... Donovan Mitchell and Devin Booker like he's not even part of that generation he's the the child who as we talked about four players have carried teams to the finals at 22 23 years old and they're the most talented basketball players of the last 30 years Shaquille O'Neal Tim Duncan Kevin Durant LeBron James and Luka Doncic is you know if he doesn't get hurt in games three and four he's looking at a series against Utah where you could make the argument Dallas is favored in that series, even though Utah has the best eight deep team in the NBA. You can legitimately make the argument Dallas is favored. And at that point, if, and I, we talk about this with House of Phoenix Suns, and I don't want to spoil it too much, but you're looking at a Western Conference with Utah, Dallas, Denver, Phoenix. Like one of those teams is going to sneak through and get to the finals. 
and I have no idea which is the best team. Like, just not a clue which one is the best of those three, or those four. With the Clippers, I feel pretty good the Clippers are better, but the Clippers would be bounced by Dallas if not for Luka's injury. So, ultimate point I wanted to bring forward with this. These playoffs were going to be all about the generational shift, and we're seeing right now, if you look up, youth is winning. And it, and maybe it's what we expected because all these results are pretty predictable minus the Lakers and the Anthony Davis injury. Like, it's just weird that the Lakers are gone at this point. And it'd be like just we're, we're one we're one Mavericks win away today from just chaos breaking out, just just utter chaos breaking out in the Western Conference, which is I said this analogy for March Madness last year is like. The South bracket is one upset away from chaos, and they didn't get it because Arkansas came back and won. And the Midwest region was one upset away from chaos, and they got it because, uh, you know, uh, Syracuse, not Syracuse, um, Houston was about to lose to St. John's. And then, you know, Loyola Chicago goes on a run, and Oregon State goes on a crazy run. So the Western Conference, like a March Madness bracket, we are one Dallas Mavericks win away. And this was the same thing it was in Game 6. Like, It's not like this wasn't different, but we are one upset away from chaos in the West. Because you look at Utah, Phoenix, Denver, and Dallas, all of those teams are either second-round exits or we thought they would be first-round exits. In the case of the Dallas Mavericks, I think a lot of us thought they'd be first-round exits, or at least I thought the Clippers would run through them in the first round. And it's not the case because Luka is just this special, but all of those teams are at the same stage of their career. None of them are are finals-ready, and none of them, we'd argue, are like finals-right-now teams. But one of them is going to sneak through the cracks and probably get smacked by Brooklyn. But... One of them is going to slip through the cracks and get a run at the NBA Finals. And so the children, and you look at the who's leading those teams. It's not LeBron James. It's not Kawhi Leonard. It's not Damian Lillard. It's not Stephen Curry, who are the names that in the West, who are still in the Western Conference, we've associated with the last five, six years of basketball. It's Jokic. He's part of the youth movement. He's He's probably the face of it right now. Him and Giannis... I mean, Jokic is going to win MVP, so him and Giannis are the faces of that generation. The one that's entering their prime right now, or in the case of Jokic, is right smack in the middle of his prime. Same as Jimmy Butler. It's Devin Booker. It's Donovan Mitchell, who are 25, 26 years old. And it's Luka Doncic, who's a baby at this point. He's part of the baby generation. Like He's bypassing the, the young guys. He's like, I'm better than you right now. I'm still a child by relative measures. He's 22 years old, but I'm just that super talented right now. And yes, Kawhi Leonard can still make a run for the older generation. And the, the Eastern conference is, is interesting. And we'll get to this when we talk about the, the Milwaukee Brooklyn series, the children, the, the generational shift is happening. LeBron is fading to the background, much like LeBron in 2012, and 2013 took the mantle from the older generation. And Tim Duncan had another run in 2014, but with the help of Kawhi Leonard. When the Dallas Mavericks in 2011 made a final stand for the older generation, Dirk Nowitzki won an MVP in 2007. 
he was very much part of a generation that was aging out of the league. I think Dirk Nowitzki, if I remember correctly. I mean, I don't remember how old Dirk Nowitzki is now. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki was 32 years old when they won the championship. 33? Let's see. 30. Yeah, Dirk was 33 years old when they won the championship in 2011. So much like Dirk Nowitzki made one last stand for a generation before 2012, LeBron James took the mantle. Brooklyn is now the team tasked with being the Dirk Nowitzki. And they're a team with just a core of the most controversial or at least controversial to basketball fans. Like you, I, you have very strong opinions about Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and James Harden either way. I love Kevin Durant. I love Kyrie Irving. I love James Harden but they give you a reason to hate them if you don't root for them or if you take this much too literally. But the point I wanted to get to that is Brooklyn is the last stand because you look at who's leading these teams that are left. Luka and Trey Young are the babies. And Kawhi Leonard is a tweener, but he's you know he's been around the block for a while. He, he was very good at a younger age. So Kawhi Leonard and this Brooklyn team are the last stand for the older generation from having an entire final four and final six and final eight. That's the youth movement, the you, the new young stars and the babies. There's just, there's two saviors trying to make this run. It's the entire Brooklyn team and it's Kawhi Leonard trying to keep that generation alive. Cause you look at who just got filtered out in the first round, which is usually just the, Hey, congrats on getting here group. It's LeBron, Damian Lillard. It's, well, hang on. LeBron, Damian Lillard, Steph Curry, Russell Westbrook in, in the um, in the Eastern Conference. Like, Russell Westbrook, it's unfair because he was going to, to get bounced anyways, but still, MVP of that generation. Um, you can go further to, to Jimmy Butler, who's, you know, the young guy or the present generation, Anthony Davis, who's the present generation, but obviously injuries derailed that one. But all of these guys are getting bounced. The people that we associate with the previous generations are getting bounced. And it's really interesting because the youth is winning. The youth is taking the mantle like LeBron took the man, like LeBron and Kevin Durant as a baby took the mantle in 2012 and took the mantle in 2013 from the San Antonio Spurs. And by 2015, 2016, then Steph showed up. Then Kevin Durant, you know, really came of age and actually put together real winning teams. And then James Harden was a, a number two seed who went to the Western Conference Finals. And just like that, the youth movement is, the, the new generation is going to get there because all these guys will age out of their primes and Giannis will just, Giannis is already the best player in the league, but he'll just start dominating some of these dudes. But right now is the transition period for what's going to lay the foundation of a generation led by Giannis, led by Jokic, led by Anthony Davis. Um, and LeBron James might tag along for the ride at some point. Um, a generation led by Joel Embiid, led by Donovan Mitchell, led by Devin Booker, led by Jimmy Butler. And we're seeing the transition right in front of our eyes. And I said at the beginning, like I said this, especially when the, the Lakers and uh, Warriors playing game was going on, is that after this, we are not guaranteed any more of these classic battles 
of our childhoods. These like these are for me my childhood, but these of the past five to six years of the NBA, we're not guaranteed LeBron versus Steph. We're definitely not guaranteed LeBron versus KD and Harden and Kyrie. We're not guaranteed these battles that we got so accustomed to across the last six, seven years of the best players in the NBA and the names that we recognized. They're just all aging out. And these winner, these games with legitimate stakes deep in the playoffs are not guaranteed anymore. And as we're looking at it right now, unless Kawhi Leonard wins game seven for the Clippers and the Clippers go on another crazy run across the next month to make the NBA Finals and meet up with Kevin Durant and James Harden, maybe, and Kyrie Irving. That generation we've become so accustomed to across the last five, six years, and I'm sure most people who are older, like, are probably mid-20s, 30s, have come to associate with their prime of the NBA. And to be honest, I should probably too. I mean, I'm 20 years old. It's the it's the NBA I grew up on. I grew up on Warriors. I grew up on Miami Heat, uh, Big Three. I grew up on Cleveland Cavaliers, LeBron James. Like those are the teams of my youth that got me into basketball in the first place. So maybe it's also my aging out into the next generation, but I will hitch my wagon to Giannis and ride it into the sunset because that, this new batch of basketball is going to be so unbelievably fun. And unless Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard and Kyrie Irving carry the baton with Brooklyn and the Clippers, the youth is winning. And not only is the youth winning, we're seeing a development where the babies are winning now. And Luka Doncic has one game to cement that and basically put an end to a transition and for practical intents and purposes, start the new movement and a new generation taking the reins from the older generation in the NBA, which is going to happen at some point, no matter what. Just can we witness it happen this season? Is this the last stand and the last ride for a generation of older NBA players who have been holding on for 2019 was their last ride. There's never been a more symbolic end than Kevin Durant tearing his Achilles and Clay Thompson tearing his ACL being like the symbolic end of a run because the Warriors were the team of a generation. And to see that team fall apart that way has never been more symbolic. And last year was a transition year and Giannis and Jimmy Butler cannibalized each other. The Lakers end up winning the championship. Yes, it was LeBron James, but it was also Anthony Davis, so it was a weird tweener team that has one star of a new generation, one face of a new generation, and one face of the old generation, this case being the face of the old generation and LeBron. And this year's another transition year. And it looks like the transition might be coming to a close, and for the next five, six years, it's going to be all about Giannis, all about Jokic, all about Donovan Mitchell, all about Embiid and all about this new generation that has, so far, won the battle of a generation that is going on in this transition period of the NBA. All right, let's talk about the Bucks and the Nets. The, for all practical intents and purposes, NBA Finals in 
the second round, uh, the closest thing you can get to the NBA Finals in the second round since 2019 when the Golden State Warriors played against the Houston Rockets, but then Kevin Durant tore his Achilles and the Toronto Raptors got a championship out of it. Um, We were talking for five, five months. We were live on the radio show when the James Harden news broke the first time that he had gotten traded. It was our season premiere on Open Talk Radio 313 The Flash when the James Harden news broke. So that was in January. We're now in June. So five months, hundreds of hours of content, conversations, debates about, you know, the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden only playing eight games together in the regular season before playing five games together against the Boston Celtics and dropping 141 points on on Boston in game four and having Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden score 102 combined points in that game four. It's still just ridiculous to say out loud. We got 43 seconds of that big three dueling against Giannis. If you ever, if this is the practical, for all practical intents and purposes, NBA finals between the Nets and the Bucks then this is the symbolic game of the generational shift. You have a Brooklyn team that is all guys from an old generation. They are the last Dirk Nowitzki stand of an old generation. Whether it be Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, or James Harden being like all of the faces that we associate with... And Russell Westbrook would be in that mix too, but guys we associate with a previous generation. Guys who, you know, with the exception of Kyrie... We're all playing together when Kevin Durant was a 23-year-old, Russell Westbrook was a 22-year-old, and James Harden was a 21-year-old leading the Oklahoma City Thunder to the finals nine years ago. When they were babies nine years ago, and now they're the old guys about to age out of their primes and make one last stand for the old generation of the NBA before the new guys take the mantle, much like the Boston Celtics did with KG and Ray Allen and Paul Pierce after they were done winning championships, when they were going up against the big three and trying to be the last mantle for the the older generation, or Dirk Nowitzki winning the championship in 2011. And we got 43 seconds before James Harden re-aggravated his hamstring, walked off the floor like it was like nothing. Like he just went straight to the tunnel like, hey, something's really wrong here. And we didn't really know what it was, and then we figured it out pretty quickly, re-aggravated the hamstring injury that kept him out 21 games in the regular season. And he went straight to go get an MRI, like left the arena, everything. Like James Harden was out of there. 43 seconds, wasn't ready to, to play, and first play of the game re-aggravates the hamstring injury. And so James Harden goes down, and right when that happened, I said to myself out loud, and and we weren't live on the YouTube yet, which by the way, you can check out our live stream of the second half of that Bucks net series. I said, Brooklyn can still win this game. Like this is, this is not like, Oh no, the series is over for Brooklyn. And I, I did say, I'm starting to rethink this series. I think this series is going to be ridiculously close. When I had said most of the way through the season, Hey, it's Brooklyn and that's it. Like Brooklyn's just totally overwhelming offensively. And I don't think that anymore. A part of it is that I am I'm hopping on the Milwaukee bandwagon, as you can tell by this amazing song that we produced uh, a week or so ago 
to honor the Milwaukee Bucks destroying the uh, Miami Heat in the first round of the playoffs. You see, I drive in the paint with my long ass arms and I'm like, fuck you. I guess the shame from Kawhi wasn't enough. I'm like, fuck Cause now we got Drew Said if I was better I'd make a three-pointer But have you seen Chris Middleton? And although the heat gon' get swept I wish Jimmy the best Tell him, fuck you ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, I'm sorry About 19 and 20 But that don't mean I can't get you there Cause I'm 26 I got two MVPs the way I play the game ain't fair. I pity the heat for not getting James Harden. Should have traded Tyler Hero. I got blocked by Bam Adebayo. I got some news for you. Bryn Forbes hit six threes in game two. You see, I drive in the paint with my long ass arms. I'm like, fuck you. I guess the shame from Kawhi wasn't enough I'm like, fuck you, cause now we got Drew Said if I was better, I'd make a three-pointer But have you seen Chris Middleton? And although the heat gon' get swept I wish Jimmy the best Tell him, fuck you Yeah, that was that was more of just an excuse to play that song again. But uh, "Buck You" is a very, uh, very good song played to CeeLo Green's "F You" or "Forget You," uh, however you want to describe it. But Milwaukee spent a week without playing, and then they came out and they played like shit. <laughs> no other way around it. Milwaukee played like shit. Milwaukee, uh, with about ten minutes left in the fourth quarter, was four for seventeen from three point line. Milwaukee hit four three-pointers in the entire game. Blake Griffin hit four three-pointers in that game. Call it a stat of the day. Call it whatever you want. The Milwaukee Bucks, with 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter, had made as many three-pointers as a team as Blake Griffin did, and they still scored 100 points against the Brooklyn Nets. I was like, well, they're not playing bad. They're totally overwhelming on the inside because Blake Griffin's the de facto center for the Brooklyn Nets, and they just have no way to stop Giannis, no way to stop Drew Holiday from getting inside, almost no way to stop Chris Middleton inside. And I'm sorry, not Chris Middleton, Brooke Lopez. Chris Middleton's problem was that he just stunk it up from three-point range. Like, they ended the game with six three-pointers, and three of them came from Giannis. Like, Chris Middleton was just terrible. Chris, I don't think Chris Middleton made a three-pointer in the game. If he did, he made one, because their three-pointers were P.J. Tucker had one, Bryn Forbes had a bank three-pointer, Giannis had three, and they had one other one that I don't remember what it was. But, like, Chris Middleton stunk for the Bucks in game one, but it's a, it's a byproduct of the team because Chris Middleton is their shot creating three point shooter and the team shot 17% from three point range. So by default, it is a, it is a byproduct of Chris Middleton sucking and the Bucks losing, but also scoring over a hundred points, which is bad because Brooklyn allows 120 points a game. So 
Brooklyn ha- and Brooklyn's offense is so much fun. Like even with James Harden out and James Harden doesn't do like the ISO game that slows it down anymore. But you could tell Brooklyn's pace was a, a just a tad up with the D'Antoni offense. Like the D'Antoni seven second or less adaptation offense. Like they don't run the true seven second or less anymore, but it's a, an adaptation of the D'Antoni offense. And that that offense was so much fun to watch. And they were daring Blake Griffin to shoot. And Blake Griffin was awesome for the Brooklyn Nets. Like it was a just a fun performance all around. And so Milwaukee, to to the point that we were talking about before, Milwaukee is in a place where they shot very poorly. And this means that they are in store for a progression to the mean where Milwaukee shoots better than that as a team. They don't shoot 17% from three, so they'll have a game where they start hitting a bunch of their threes. Maybe it's game three back in Milwaukee. Maybe it's game two without James Harden, and they you know score 130 points and beat Brooklyn, and Brooklyn doesn't have the same shooting night where the big four for Brooklyn uh, outplayed Milwaukee's big four. If, you, if the big four was Blake Griffin, because Blake Griffin finished with 18 and 14 and got the post-game interview, and Joe Harris hit five threes, which was more than the four threes that Milwaukee hit prior to garbage time. I think they finished with six in the game. But Milwaukee was in a super fascinating position because they should progress to the mean at some point, and that moment is when James Harden's injury is going to start to sting for Brooklyn is when Milwaukee doesn't give a game away by shooting 17% from three. Milwaukee just was a poor three-point shooting team. And Giannis still dominated the game. Like, Giannis just got everything he wanted inside because Brooklyn just doesn't have a dude that can defend Giannis. And Giannis finished with 34 points and 11 rebounds. And like I said, he hit three threes in the game. Brooke Lopez had 19 points. Pretty much everyone came in the paint or at the free throw line. Drew Holiday, 17 points, didn't make a single three-pointer. By the way, 17, 9, and 6 for Drew Holiday. Didn't make a single three-pointer in the entire game. Chris Middleton, 13 points. But again, all of it came inside because Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday and Brooke Lopez and Giannis can get inside whenever they want. Jesus, phrasing was weird on that. But they can. Brooklyn has no height. Brooklyn has no height and no, they have length, but not length on the defensive side of the ball. And so this is going to be a dilemma for them as they go on throughout the series, because sooner or later, Milwaukee shots are going to fall. Milwaukee as a team is going to start hitting threes. Bryn Forbes is not going to end with three points. If he's filling the DiVincenzo role, of course, like he's got, he's getting 22, 25 minutes a game. Brian Forbes is not going to have three points. Pat Connaughton is not going to have zero points with six minutes left in the game. Like the the math is going to change on this for Brooke, for Milwaukee. When that happens, maybe they don't get the same Blake Griffin contributions. That's when the loss of James Harden is going to start to, to feel a little more intense on the Milwaukee Bucks. I'm sorry, on the Brooklyn Nets. Damn it. I almost nailed the dismount. One way I can nail the dismount Shout out to Mike James for the Brooklyn Nets. Mike James played four minutes in the Boston Celtics series. He went to you know Italy and Spain and Croatia, spent uh, time on the practice squad of the Phoenix Suns, um, ended up on the Brooklyn Nets deep down the roster. He had to fill in for James Harden and get 30 minutes and scored 12 points and had seven rebounds. It was a... Uh, a, a small contribution. It's not like he played awesome. He had 12 points in 30 minutes and seven rebounds, of course. 
but it was enough on a night where the Milwaukee Bucks could not do anything off the bench where they had eight bench points with seven minutes left in the fourth quarter. They had eight bench points in the entire game. So shout out to Mike James and shout out to the Brooklyn Nets because their offense is really fun to watch. This series is going to be really fun and it is just so sad that we don't get to watch James Harden. I am literally pounding my fist on the table because James Harden has re-injured his hamstring and if he was in that bad of a shape, I doubt he's ready to go by Tuesday for the Brooklyn Nets. All right, let us talk about this Nuggets and Sun series with our friend, uh, sorry, our friend House of Phoenix Suns. Uh, this is going to be a very fun series to watch. Hello? hello, 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 I can hear you. How's it going? It's going great. How are you doing today? I'm I'm good. Ah, it's good to hear, my man, and uh, congratul- I think some congratulations order here. Yeah. Uh, your your boys <laughs> did the impossible. I know everyone, like, I can't imagine we were the, like, underdogs as a two-seed, but, I mean, I can see why not a lot of people watch the Suns during the season. Everyone knows Lakers, LeBron, Anthony Davis, all this, but, I mean, the better team won, I feel, and that's just how, how it is. Yes, the better team won. He, someone who covers the Phoenix Suns and lives in Arizona, wants to say that the better team ended up winning in this series. And to be honest, it it was very clear that without Anthony Davis, the Lakers were outmatched, especially because the Suns have great perimeter defense and terrible interior defense. And so they took Anthony Davis out of the equation and everything changed for y'all. So congratulations to the Phoenix Suns. They are playing the Denver Nuggets in round two. And, you know, we're recording this before game seven of the Clippers and Mavericks, but based on how that falls out, I mean, there's no telling how far the Suns can go now. Yeah. I I think uh, Kendrick Perkins said he wouldn't be surprised if the Suns went to the finals, but I mean, I don't listen to anything Kendrick Perkins really says because he, he doesn't know a whole lot, it seems, and he thinks that he was one of the best players of all time. <laughs> but I I take that with a grain of salt. Obviously, it's nice when people think that we're going to go that far because it makes me think that I'm not alone in thinking that. Yeah, because, I mean, if the last four teams, even if, the, well, you could say even if the Clippers advance, but if the last four teams are Utah, Phoenix, Denver, and Dallas – any of those teams could fall through the cracks and win. I have I have no idea because all those teams feel like they're all at about the same stage of their franchise right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the Clippers, they're they're more advanced. I think they have two players in their prime, and the other teams were. were I don't think like the Jazz are in their prime. I don't think we're in our prime. And obviously, the Nuggets missing Jamal Murray, they're not in their prime. So. Like the other teams, we're, we're all like, of the, all of like, them feel like they're a Damian Lillard away from actually being a championship team. That's what it kind of feels like. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, say the Clippers lost to the Mavericks. That, like, whoever made it out of the West would lose in in the finals because the East seems to be stronger this this year. I think we talked about that last episode, uh, last time I was on here. Is that like the East? They seem more advanced in their their franchise like uh, stage. Yeah. You could argue that the three best teams in the NBA all are in the Eastern conference right now. And one of them 
Yeah, I mean, you could also make the argument. I've thrown it out there as like, hey, if you look at the way this is breaking out, but some would make the argument that Bucks and Nets is the NBA championship. Like what yeah, we're watching I'm right really now is the equivalent. Yeah, that's going to be a really good series, I think. Yeah, game one has already finished by the time this podcast comes out, so that's going to be awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, that should be interesting. And you guys got to find out your matchup. And it's the matchup that, I mean, Bucks nets is obviously like in a tier of its own. But of the, the three potential matchups remaining, Nuggets and Suns is the most fascinating because I don't see any way that series isn't going seven games. And the only way I could see it is if the Nuggets, if the Clipper, or if, sorry, if the Suns, literally have no answers for the three guys that are all six, eight or bigger working yeah. the offense for the Denver Nuggets. But I, I see almost no way that series doesn't go seven. Yeah. And uh, I saw this on, on ESPN yesterday. Um, like a stat is that we've played them three times in, in the regular season and they won twice and we won once, but the both times that they won, it went to overtime. So it's, it's really close of how, evenly matched we really are and I don't know if Jamal Murray played in any of those games or not but still it doesn't really matter yeah and the math changes on this because they're very good perimeter defenders Chris Paul and Devin Booker was bad but he's gotten much better defensively and Michael Bridges is one of the better defensive wings in the NBA and so you have those three guys against Compasso and Austin Rivers and Monte Morris and if they can hold KCP and Dennis Schroeder for most of the series, because they did hold them again in game six, too. Yeah. Like, I could see them taking those guys out of the equation and then just getting absolutely torched by the big guys. Yeah, it's really going to come down to how well Aiton can defend Jokic. And, I mean, he's done decent. I mean, as best as he as he can. I mean, Jokic, MVP, caliber player, It's a, you can't stop him, like – yeah, you can't play that. You can't play the Anthony Davis defense where you put like no. Jay Crowder or Cam Johnson and then rotate on double no. with Jokic. It, it's going to have to be Aiton pretty much the whole time because any of our backup bigs as well, they're not going to be able to do anything. Frank Kaminsky, yeah. <laughs> gonna do yeah, it was about a laugh. Old Frank Kaminsky still hanging around in the league at this point, just throws up a couple threes a game and uh, go heads to the bench. Uh huh. Yeah. And if he makes one, then he fans himself, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But to your point on the defense, like, it is a lot of, like, hey, I know Michael Porter Jr. sits in the corner and shoots, and you can kind of put bridges on him. But to be honest, if I mean, if the Nuggets look around and say, look, Jokic might not be having a great night, I don't see any reason why they can't, like they did against Portland, just throw it to Aaron Gordon and say, Aaron, just start drive, 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 and try and take over the Suns' defense. I, and I don't know what the answer is for Phoenix, to be honest. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, like, imagining that the matchups are going to be Jokic, Aiton, Jay Crowder on Aaron Gordon, and then Bridges on, on Michael Porter Jr. And, I mean, I think that's the best way to match up. Not that it's it's a great matchup, but I just think that's the only way that we're going to be able to to guard them is like that. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that, but – Bridges, Bridges is so interesting as a player. We, we've talked a lot about like Aiton and Booker gets a lot of talk, but Bridges has been like one of those interesting pieces for the Suns where he, he feels like one of those, like he plays like one of those KG 10 year vets and he's only been in the league a few years, but it, it's like he, he's been crafted into the Trevor Ariza type role for yeah, the Suns. 
Yeah, and, and I mean, he's kind of embraced that role of that he's he does all the sloppy work. He's always there for the rebounds. He's always getting back on defense. And then he just kind of hangs out in the corner and makes the occasional cut, and that's really all we need from him. Yeah, Bridges, Bridges is a fascinating guy for that reason. And defensively, that's what they kind of were hoping for when they traded for him. And I'll never forget, like, he was from Philadelphia. His mom used to work for the Sixers, and he got drafted by the Sixers and then got traded to the Suns. Everyone was like, oh, that yeah, is and- a heartbreaker. But to be fair, the Suns, I forgot what they ended up giving up in that trade. But it ended up working out very swimmingly for the Suns because – it allows them to part with a Kelly Oubre in a Chris Paul yeah, trade. Exactly. And I actually had the opportunity, luckily, to uh, interview Mikhail Bridges. And I asked him about that that day, like where where he got traded. Because he was he, he told me, he was like, I was so happy to get drafted by, by Philly. Like, that was my dream. And then when I heard I got traded to the Suns, I was so pissed. I was so mad. I didn't want to go. Um, but now I'm really happy to be there. So it was, it's kind of a funny story about that. But yeah, I mean, Bridges, Bridges ends up being one of those picks, like, out of the long rebuild. You had some hits and you had some misses, and he's one of those hits that, like, ends up paying off when you guys have a chance to make a run at the NBA Finals in your first year. Well, your first year with this core of the team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, I, I mean, everyone's going to credit Chris Paul and everything, but I really feel that the supporting cast is really what what set us apart from other years because most of the other supporting casts – aren't in the NBA anymore because they were that bad. So it's really a credit to James Jones that he's been able to, to make an actual NBA caliber team in two years that he took over. You were kind of talking earlier about that idea or about the series coming down to Aiton and Jokic on the inside. So would you say like Jokic is the, the cliche X factor in the series where they go as DeAndre Aiton goes I think I said Jokic a second ago, but they go as DeAndre Ayton goes. Yes, definitely. And defensively. Definitely, because when he has his nights, I don't think that anyone can really stop us because, for example, this last game against the Lakers, I think Ayton had like 10 points and we still won. So imagine if he can get 20. And I don't think there's any reason he can't. It's just about getting him involved and him being aggressive, both offensively and defensively. Because I think – I think offensively is where his skill set really thrives because he's an offensive big man. He's kind of worked on the defense, but if he can, if he can score 20 points every game, this series, I don't see any reason why we can't win it. Well, also that makes it such that like Devin Booker doesn't have to score 33 in the first half. Like he did against the Lakers in game six. That too. Yeah. It changes the math. And you guys, I mean, I'm already going in. I'm assuming, like, the, the Nuggets were already struggling to find offense from the guards. They miss Jamal Murray so bad. Like, this is the series where you look up and say, God, they really need Jamal Murray against the Suns. But I look up at Denver, and they're, they're already struggling to get play from the guards. But I do think if Monte Morris does do the kind of things he did towards the back end of the series for the Nuggets, where he had like 28 in the double overtime game, I think he's like the the cliche X factor, and I put X factor in air quotes, that could hurt the Suns if they can get production out of the guards. Because they're going to be counting on like 60, 70, 80 points from that big three of Gordon and Michael Porter Jr. and Nikola Jokic for much of the series. Yeah, and obviously – we have our big three. They have they have theirs. So if we can 
match up point wise pretty evenly with theirs. I say we both score about 80 points, then I think our supporting cast is better than theirs and we should be able to win. So it's just about our big three having as good of a game as their big three. And That's I mean, Chris- actually, I mean, it's a simple way to put it, but it's actually pretty true going into this series is that the best players are going to matter that much because you're right, Denver, Denver's got washed up Paul Millsap and, you know, a couple dudes down the bench, like maybe yeah. Will Barton comes back. He's been hurt for most of the series, but maybe he comes back. They don't have much after that, that top of the lineup. Yeah, and I, I'm just really interested in Monte Morris of how well he'll do because, I mean, he played really well against the Trailblazers. So it's going to be interesting to see what he can do against our perimeter defense. Yeah, he's, he's like, in terms of, like, playoff breakout, from, like, one to Scary Terry, he's like a seven right now <laughs> yeah. in terms of breaking out in the playoffs. Like, just dude that was deep down the bench. He's getting in because five guards are hurt for the Nuggets and boom, 28 points against the Portland Trailblazers to ruin Damian Lillard's 56-point game. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's it's crazy that, that he's doing so well. But, I mean, credit to him. And hopefully he doesn't do so well against the Suns. Yeah. that's a, And to be honest, the Suns have that strategy because, again, perimeter defense is on is, like, on it for the Suns. So, Game one is Monday, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yes. So game one is Monday and the Suns are, it's in Phoenix. And so I'm guessing that the Suns are probably slight favorites in that game. But how important do you think game one is going to end up being for the whole series? Even though I think it's going to go seven, like Denver really wants to split one and one in Phoenix for sure. Yeah. And I think game one and game two are pretty much we have to win both of those games. That's what that was a problem against the Lakers is that we and that, what made me nervous was that we didn't win all of our home games. So I think home games are crucial, especially in the playoffs. And I thought especially against the Lakers going to Staples Center down two one, it's like, man, this isn't good. So we need to win our home games because, I mean, Denver – Denver's allowing, I think, a lot of fans. So it's not, it wouldn't be nice to go to Denver 1 1, and then we'd have to win another game there. I just think game one will really set the tone for what we're, what we're going to do in the, in the well, rest of the And Denver and Utah always have the, the altitude home court advantage that everyone talks about is that Denver, not only is the airport far away from the arena, but also you have to, if you come in on the same day, all of a sudden you have to adjust to altitude real quick. So that, I mean, I don't know how much that makes a difference, but people talk about it during the regular season all the time. It's like, if you have a back-to-back in Denver, you can just toss the second game away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point as well. And hopefully we'll have some time to adjust to that, but I'm really excited to see what happens on Monday. Well, yeah, you had said back in the, uh, back in the regular season when y'all had the number two seed, like, you know, second round exit, we're good. And now you kind of yeah. have to readjust the expectations a little bit because you look around and like, oh, shit, we just beat the Lakers. Yeah, I was expecting to play Lakers second round and then be like, okay, that's okay. But, yeah, we just beat the Lakers and now it's pretty much wide open in the West as we talked about. And I just feel like Suns fans, we celebrated when beating the Lakers as if we, we made the NBA Finals. And – that that just means that whatever happens from here on out, it's okay. We're all happy. The players can play without any expectation. Just go out there. And yes, now you're ahead of schedule. Everything's yeah, ahead exactly. of schedule now. Like we won't be angry if you lose, 
at all. So just hopefully you continue to win. <laughs> like that's just, it's just more of hope instead of we expect to win. Yeah. Your window is starting to open. So now you can bring in another piece here and there. And they've, Probably the biggest thing for the Suns at this point is just can you re-sign Chris Paul part of his free agency. But still, like you can, like you said, everything's wide open. You can sense the opportunity to make a deep playoff run. Yeah, and uh, we'll have to figure that out, figure out free agency stuff after the season, and I'm sure it's going to be really tough for James Jones to figure all that out. Um, but, yeah, I'm just – excited to actually see some playoff basketball a little bit longer because it's been so long. Yes. You get, and not only that, you guys have like real expectations now. Like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. We'd be happy to win a playoff series. Well, now we've won a playoff series and you're looking around and you're like, well, we could win two or three right now. We, we could yeah. go all the way with this thing. Exactly. And it's really, I love when people, when teams ex- exceed my expectations because, and I, I didn't set them very low either. Like I, I expected us to make playoffs and, and get to the second round. And that's what we did. And I'm really, I'm really proud of the team that we, we well, were able to do that. Yeah. We talked about that coming out of the bubble, like the bubble, they were still, they technically entered the bubble last year, like still rebuilding or retooling or whatever it was like the bubble was the moment where they arrived. And the fact that like, year one with the current core of the team they've done what they've done is like oh we're we're kind of ahead of schedule now like we went from being you know what is this gonna be what is what is the identity of the team can we turn this around to oh you know what is it eight ten months later yeah this can really happen we can really go for it right now with a maximum window of opportunity i know and i'm just I still don't know the words to ex- explain like how happy I am that we actually did it. I just remember covering the Suns during the 19-win season, and I was just like, why am I doing this? This is terrible. I shouldn't. I should just stop my Instagram page. Like, It's just not fun anymore. And then last last season came around. I was like, wow, this is, this is a lot better. We're actually winning games. The bubble happened. I was like, wow, ain't no – whole lot of stuff happened and then we signed Chris Paul and now here we are it's just it it paid off to go through all the tough times as an Instagram page and as a fan just to get rid of that and and move on and now it feels like we're back to the old sons I talk about that all the time with small market teams is that it always matters more to small market teams because you have to go through the trials of being bad and going like decades without having real championship opportunity and to be honest, Lakers fans kind of became that across the 2010s. But, like, I, I'm a huge San Diego Padres fan in baseball. It's like, yeah, it's more sweeter for small market teams because of what you have to go through and how much those teams usually mean to the people who really follow the team. Like, really get super into it and go through a lot of losing to then have – when you don't get good wins as much, the, the ones that are good feel that much better. Yeah, a hundred percent. And even when we started a season like a three and one, everyone was super excited. Uh, that was like, oh, this is the year. I think that that was last season with Aaron Baines because Aiton was out. We started like three and one, five and two, and we were just like, wow, we're really good. <laughs> even though it's seven games into the season. Yeah, it was like OKC this year where they're like, oh my gosh, Sam Presti, the genius, and then they think they won like one game in the last twenty-seven of the season. But <laughs> yeah. It, but they're going to, I mean, Oklahoma city is an interesting case. Cause they're, they're a small market. They're a small city, small team, but 
they've had nothing but winning their entire time there, and now they're yeah, turning back in the other direction. Yeah, that's true, and I'm excited to see how they they rebuild as well because they have all the pieces really they need to rebuild. Yeah, they're they're one one playoff loss from Donovan Mitchell demanding a trade and them being like, here's a thousand draft picks and <laughs> all that, weird. or or one one blown Chris Paul free agency and Devin Booker away from get it from landing a Devin Booker in, in a trade. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah, but. That, this is this is positivity for you. So Monday night is game one as we kick off the Nuggets and Suns series. And we're going to have lots more with our buddy House of Phoenix Suns because the Suns are still here. We thought it might be over. The Suns are still here. So we've got lots of reasons to talk about the Suns. And it's always nice to come on here because usually we're, it's something good happened with the Suns. So I come on here and I express how, how good I feel about the Suns. So I'm I'm excited and hopefully I will be back on here for – more positive talk about the Suns. Yes, it was positive, except that one time they were down 2-1 and Anthony Davis hadn't gotten hurt yet. And then you guys won three straight games. And it was like, okay, nothing but good vibes for the last week and a half here for the Phoenix Suns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll admit, I, I was very, very upset, very pessimistic that day. But they proved me wrong, and I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's turning out pretty nicely for y'all right now. So... Until we speak again, good luck to the Phoenix Suns. And uh, this, this is going to be interesting. Rally the Valley. Hashtag Rally the Valley. Yeah, your favorite little slogan. <laughs> yes, it's, it's fantastic. It is, it is excellent. So I am, I am definitely rallying the Valley from the other Valley, the one in California. <laughs> All right, perfect. Thank you. <laughs> All righty. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, too, just outside Thank of you. basketball. You too, and always, always a pleasure to come on here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.